Today I was doing linear interpolation, which means I had to learn what linear interpolation was. No, I don't know. I'm not going to explain it. I was deciding whether I was going to ask. <laughs> no. It's maths, Francine. It's dangerously close to physics and we know what happens if I go there. Newton didn't and that's the problem. Mm. I'm rereading uh, Rivers of London right now, which uh-huh. obviously gives me a very different perspective on Isaac Newton. Secret yes. wizard. Isaac Newton, secret wizard. He would have been if he could have been. He was an alchemist, that's for sure. Yep. And you know what they say about alchemists? Linear interpolation. <laughs> Run, the guild's exploding again. But yeah, I forgot how good these were. These are, because I haven't read like the last two or three. Mm. Uh, oh, I've only yeah. got up to the hanging tree, so I'm rereading them all and then I'm going to grab the last few I don't have. I haven't read the last one yet. I've had it I've had it at home for ages. I know when I start, it'll be... Gone in like a day, yeah. Unput downable. God, I hate that. Unput downable. Yeah, sorry. God, that's an awful word. Say that. Yeah. Um, well, I couldn't think about. I couldn't think of pick what to read next. I know I've got books on my shelves that I ha- literally haven't read that I should read. Yeah, and there's just millions of things I haven't read that I should read. But I decided to just start at the beginning of my bookshelves and see how I feel about wandering through them. Which meant starting with Aranovich because mm. he's got two A's at the beginning of his name. The crafty bugger. Yep, that's how they get you. I've changed my name to Ardvark. Please, please change your name to Ardvark Francine. First and last name. Please be Ardvark. Ardvark, Ardvark. Ardvark. <laughs> What's your middle well, name That's what again? AA Milne stands for. Little known fact. <laughs> Ardvark, Ardvark Milne. I think so. Can you dispute it? No. No? <laughs> I mean, I could. I could literally Google it, but I'm not going to because I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, As opposed to Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien. Jolkin. Jol- what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rock and roll. J. Rock and Roll Tolkien. Ah, yes, of course. And crazy saxophonist Lewis. <laughs> right, we're going to run out of these soon. Now, now I've run out of them. Mm. Desperately staring at uh, George. No, I can't think of any other good R words. Randy Renaissance. Is good George fun. Randy Renaissance Martin. It fits. Yeah, no, we'll go with it. Cool. Okay. So the world's awful. Yeah, that's mm. that's a thing. Uh, winter came back after a week of spring, and we've had snow and hail and things for the last two days, which is lovely as the energy prices shoot up. Yeah, the tabloids have gone for such cheerful slogans as April Cruel's Day. Yeah, good. Beautiful. Oh, it's April Fool's Day. It is April that's Fool's Day. De- that's a less depressing thing. Listeners, we're becoming a Harry Potter recap podcast. Um. It says, Mike, this isn't going out on April Fool's Day. Yeah. <laughs> I might have edited that there, but I don't, we can't afford to lose like the 5% who wouldn't listen until we, we revealed the joke three seconds later. I don't think anyone's going to believe us for a start. We're very convincing. I'm not. You're an actor. Not anymore. I gave it up. Oh, does that mean you just forgot? Yeah, completely forgot how to work. Yeah. Yep. Can't lie. Cool. Have you seen any decent April Fool's stuff? No, it's been. There's not been a lot of it. I think everyone's too busy being horrified mm. to uh, really do the April Fools thing this year. Normally, there's some quite funny corporate ones. Yeah. Well, we haven't had uh, California properly wake up yet, have we? No, true. And they um, do it all day in America. BBC, Americans go all day. <laughs> BBC used to occasionally do some funny ones, things about uh, pasta farms. 
Yeah, but then they spent the next 20 years going on about that one time they did the pasta farms. Oh, yeah, good point. There was quite a good one in our local paper one time where they claimed that there was going to be a Barry Snedman's version of the London Eye. I'd have enjoyed that. Just looking through the BBC now, and honestly, if they've done one, I couldn't tell you. I think at this point, nothing's really credulous. Oh, the, the Will Smith hit Chris Rock. Maybe that was just a long con. I feel like that probably wasn't an April Fool's joke. God, that was a fucking weird 24 hours. I woke up on Monday morning. So this is obviously going to be a week ago from when this came out. So I woke up on Monday morning after the Oscars, quite looking forward to, oh, I'll look through the outfits because that's the only bit of the Oscars I'm interested in now. And since I no longer work at a cinema, I don't have to feign interest in the rest of the shit. Mm. Um, and then saw, because I obviously look at my phone as soon as I wake up because I am a broken person. The first thing I saw was a Guardian news headline about Will Smith punching Chris Rock. So obviously uh-huh. I didn't read the article, I just went to Twitter. And God, the takes, the opinions. Yeah, it was so much deeper than I thought. I and just thought, oh, that's really funny, a dude hit a dude. <laughs> the Oscars, yeah. what the fuck? And then it was like, no, this is about racism in America. This is mm-hmm. about toxic masculinity. This is mm-hmm. a- this is about uh, ableism. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't have the energy to personally have an opinion on it. I don't know if you formed I one, Francine. Yeah, no, I have an opinion. How do you feel? Everybody involved is a twat. But also it's really quite fucking funny. I quite enjoyed the little discussion we all had earlier about obituaries. Oh, wow, that's a depressing thing to say. You and I and our other friend in the group chat were discussing the nature of the obituary. Yeah. And whether it should be sugar-coated or even-handed or the particularly mm-hmm. bitchy obituary that we read, the guy that's from it. The Wanted that's passed yeah. away with brain cancer. Yeah, that was the problem. Someone posted it on Twitter. Uh, what, what's his name? Uh, it's Tom Parker. You made a very good point. It's as much about being a decent journalist as it is about being a decent person. Yeah. And I think one, in theory, should lead to the other somewhat. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, listeners, if I don't edit this bit out. Um, the the obituary of Tom Parker by Caroline Sullivan is just the shittiest thing I've ever... It's not the shittiest thing I've ever read, obviously. But it's yeah. a really bad obituary. It reads like a low-grade interview intro that just got recycled for this because they can't pay proper writers to do obituaries anymore. And no, no. she's one of those really awful arsy sarcastic fucking entertainment writers i hate there are so few entertainment writers i don't hate i'll tell you that joanna i have a couple of entertainment writers i'm a huge fan of and they're basically the only ones i read and by a couple of i basically just mean joanna robinson who mark pretty Burrows much only right. podcast now oh yeah obviously mark <laughs> burrows i feel like it goes without saying that the podcast supports mark burrows <laughs> but now i can't think of any more that i am um... yeah yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there are a few I, I don't hate, but it's just... Do you know what? Yeah, I'm going to read the first paragraph of this. A manufactured boy band has two objectives. In the short term, it is to sell as much product from albums to dolls as possible. The longer term aim is to achieve the kind of fame where the wider public can put names to the members' faces, thus smoothing the way for post-band careers. The Wanted, a British-Irish quintet who helped revive the stagnant boy band sector in the early 2010s, did not quite reach that point. Blah, blah, blah. This is the start of an obituary. Yeah. The man's name isn't mentioned until the third paragraph. The fact he's died isn't mentioned until the fourth paragraph, and it's kind of sh- weirdly put in in an awkward subclause. Yeah. The writer's, like, boring take on boy bands boy band is culture. not more important than what the fucking guy's life was. He was 33 years old and died of a brain tumour, and that's how you're going to... 
God also damn. like did a shit ton of charity and a raising awareness work, which I only found mm. out about because of the comments on yeah, Twitter yeah. <laughs> under the under the obituary, not the obituary itself. Oh, exactly. Well, there was um, yeah. a deeper point I didn't get into in the group chat because, as I said, I was finishing a sock, but mm. I started thinking about was this weird idea of parasocial relationships, and especially when it comes to celebrity death, because it feels like it's almost the opposite when it's a minus minor celebrity is an unfair way to say it but like i couldn't have told you who tim parker was and i forgot the wanted existed yeah of people like almost wanting to show how little they care Mm. it's it's the same people who comment oh for fuck's sake this isn't news under literally every celebrity news article it's very much that attitude yeah as opposed to the weird obituaries of the famous people that we all feel like we had sort of a claim on or a stake in like david bowie passing away those obituaries like were held to a much higher standard because everyone, not everyone, obviously. Yeah, Caitlin Moran's was fantastic. Caitlin Moran wrote a beautiful piece, mm. um, but people felt a, more invested. Yeah, I didn't have really much more to go mm. with than that. Well, to bring it back around to Terry Pratchett, it was a very weird thing mm. where you know people felt felt a genuine sense of grief that they had lost something like a distant family member when Terry Pratchett passed away because he'd been such a big part of his readers' lives. Yeah, I'm not. Being funny, I cared more than I would have if a distant family member passed away. Um, not mean, not meaning to sound terrible. Not meaning to sound terrible. That's just my default state. Uh, <laughs> actually, that's vaguely relevant. We recently passed the anniversary of his death, haven't we? Yeah, it was a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I, we didn't tweet much and stuff because I think I was probably still vaguely in the grip of a fever at that point. I was ill. This is why I should have passwords to things. For when you're fever dreaming. That was a great week. I was off my tits for it i can't remember any of it oh good yeah good fun anyway um we've talked enough bollocks do you want to make a podcast francine i guess we can make a podcast yeah don't have to if you don't want to no i want to make a podcast. yeah let's make a podcast i mean if it's okay with you no worries if not <laughs> no worries, i am worried either way <laughs> i am always worried <laughs> i fucking love ridiculous anxiety tumblr memes at the moment I'm, I'm very into tumblr text posts at the moment it's uh it's far too late for me to be getting so into this niche genre of comedy, but it's here now and now it's perfect. has melded with my brain. I love it. Right, podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Two Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discord series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And we are here to talk about Carpe Jugulum. Yeah, the twenty straighten the jugular. Yeah, we're gonna no. seize that throat. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess worse than we think yep. about it, yep. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Note on spoilers before we crack on. We're a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, heavy spoilers for the book Carpe Jugulum, but we will avoid spoiling major future events in the Discworld series, and we are saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So, you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. In a carriage in the dead of night with many black plumes. 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 <laughs> I'm going to keep the lift being to a minimum, I promise. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't pick up well on the microphone if I do noise reduction, so. <laughs> Damn it. And I was going to do the whole episode in the start of Igor. Uh, follow up. We got stuff to follow up on, Francine. Yeah. Steve Jeffrey replied about bromide in your tea. Ooh. So we were talking about the reference to putting something in tea having something to do with libido was probably a real thing. And indeed, the earliest use of bromide was in medicines. Some bromide salts, notably potassium bromide, were found to be natural sedatives, 
were prescribed in the 19th century as a remedy for epilepsy. However, they had a curious side effect. They dampened the libido, which only reinforced the common misconception at the time that epilepsy was brought on by excessive masturbation. The side effect also lies behind the urban myth that bromide was added to the tea of prisoners in World War I soldiers in order to reduce sexual urges. Ah, Steve didn't know that was an urban myth until he started the research, and I hadn't even heard of the urban myth. I'd heard of the urban myth, but I'm not sure if I thought it was an urban myth or a, yeah. or a urban fact. You remain one step ahead of me, Joanna. I was myth taken. <laughs> I stole that joke from Buffy. No. <laughs> I'd have never known. <laughs> I know, but at least one listener. All right, would. fine. <laughs> uh, other follow up from Andrew Broadfoot emailed us. First, a reminder that you're great and your podcast is very good. Thank you, Andrew. I might just leave it there. Yeah, no, that's good. No, quick theory, and I like this. We're told Mrs. Rincewin ran away before Rincewin was born, but never where she went or why. And then the last consonant, we meet Bill Rincewin, Arch-Chancellor of the University in XXXX. What if that's where she ran away to? They could be half-brothers. There's more than enough magical interference and timey-wimey nonsense involved to smooth out any issues, so without a compelling argument, to the contrary, I am adopting this as my personal headcanon says Andrew, and I agree. I love that, yeah. Yeah. Yep. She climbed Keeping a bit that. of driftwood with, with some camels. Obviously. Yes. Well, she was on the camel on the driftwood. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to travel, darling. camel, Mrs. Rincewood. Exactly. Then turtles all the way down. Yeah. And Paula on Twitter confirmed for us that Kalgoorlie is where it is, which is the middle of nowhere with no water, because it's Australia's fifth most productive gold mine. Ooh. The giant hole in the ground is... It's three and a half by one and a half kilometres, and it's called the Super Pit. Oh. Uh, and it's the biggest gold mine in Australia. The Super Pit. Goodness super me. Super Pit. My nickname. But enough of the last continent. Let's talk about Carpe Jugulum. Okay, back to the first continent. Yes. Introduce us, Francine. Introduce us to the book. Well, Joanna, this is the 23rd Discworld book. Um, by the way, we missed marking the halfway point. I feel like we should have done that. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Also, it's... this is our ETS episode, which is a nice round number. And yes. there are 41 Discworld books. We're now on the 23rd. So, listeners, if you could retcon it so that we, we said something notable yeah. a couple of episodes ago, an episode and a half ago, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> two and a half if episodes you could ago. Generally, retcon <laughs> that we ever say anything notable, actually, mm-hmm. that would be great. It would save us a lot of work. Yeah. Anyway, it was released on the 5th of November. Very memorable date, of course. Of 1998. I can never remember the 5th of November. <laughs> it was adapted into a play by Stephen Briggs in 1999. Yeah, lovely. The title, I bet today, as Joanna knows, because I've sent her a few screenshots, I spent a happy half hour to an hour digging through the alt.fan and alt.book.pratchett forums uh, from the late 90s, because nice. Pratchett was quite active online then, and found some useful bits of snark. And he was talking about the title at one point. He's so grumpy on the internet. I love it. It's great. Somebody commented, why isn't the title of Carpe Jugulum, Carpe, uh, oh fuck, Jugulum or Lugulum maybe? The current convention is to use V for the consonantal U, but to keep consonantal I as I and not J. Did the period in which the older way was still taught intersect with the period when Pratchett took Latin or was the J adopted in order to dumb down the title? Question mark. Smiley face. Pratchett's head. Who gives a damn about a current convention? There will be another one along soon. I've just pulled a couple of books off the reference shelf at random and found plenty of J's in Latin. Fashions come and go, and importantly, non-scholars, brackets, that is, most people, lag well behind, if indeed they're even aware of the changes. 
The important thing here is that someone whose knowledge of Latin is only average will have a much better chance of getting carpe jugulum because of the jugulum jugular resonance than they'll have with carpe eugulum, which, depending on the font, will get most Brits thinking about ears. Lugulum. There we go. See, he's right. Uh It's hardly a case of dumbing down. It is worse and acceptable if, brackets arguably, archaic usage for clarity, as opposed to, say, fabricate DM. PVNC. PVNC. And he's ended with a smiley face. (laughs) Notably, I would say, Pratchett puts a little nose in his smiley face, which the original Uh, commenter did not. Old fashioned. Remember the days of a nose in a smiley face? Yes. Now, I may have said this on the podcast before, but I think it's important. I don't think that the current thing that all software seems to do of turning the, apart from signal, which we use, which is good, of turning Mm. the little colon bracket into a into a round circle yellow smiley face emoticon an emoticon i don't think that's acceptable no i don't like it i if i mean a yellow emoticon face then i choose one and i choose the Mm -hmm. correct one however it doesn't convey the same emotion as colon bracket and definitely not the same emotion as Mm -hmm. colon hyphen bracket yes so if whoever's in charge of these things is listening could you please fix that for me thank you yeah I mean something very specific if yeah. I use the colon bracket as a smiley face. Mm-hmm. And normally what I mean is that I am being a dick. This is not relevant to the book Carpe Jugulum, is it, Francine? No, it isn't, Joanna. So perhaps we should... Should we keep talking about the book Carpe Jugulum? Yeah, okay. Would you like to read the blurb? Mightily Oates has not picked a good time to be a priest. He thought he'd come to Lanka for a simple ceremony. Now he's caught up in a war between vampires and witches. There's young Agnes, who is really in two minds about everything. Magrat, who's trying to combine witchcraft and nappies. Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, who is big trouble. And the vampires are intelligent. They've got style and fancy waistcoats. They're out of the casket and want a bite of the future. Mightily Oates knows he has a prayer, but he wishes he had an axe. And then a point that I could be, actually, but I'm not going to. Uh, Carpe Jugulum is, 20 Pratch- is Terry Pratchett's 23rd Discworld novel, but the first to star vampires. Uh. It's not the first to feature vampires. We had vampires in Witches Abroad. But I'm not going to be all, nah, about it, because it is the, the vampire in Witches Abroad didn't exactly have a starring role. It was a brief bat that Grebo ate. Did I say something about it being the first one with vampires? No, the blurb did. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, yes. It says it's the first one to star vampires. Uh, indeed, indeed. And I'm going to allow it because it says star and not feature. It's got a couple of similarities to Lords and Ladies, hasn't it? But I think, as you noted with the last kind of Echo one, it's not the same as Pratchett redoing it again, as he kind of did. It's a, this plot works for this setting. It does. take the bones and rebuild it. I'm going to go out and say, I think this is a kind of an underrated Discworld book and an Mm. underrated Witches book. Like I never see this one in people's top fives or top tens, including my own. But I'm also going to come out and say on this read, I've decided it's actually the best Witches book and going up into my top 10, if not top five. Okay. Okay. Hmm. I will make my decision on that by the end. Mm -hmm. And I will be continuing to present this unifying theory as we work through the book as to why it's the best. Write that down. Joanna, unifying theory, brackets, 10. <laughs> cool. This section goes up to page 129 in the corky paperback and ends on the line, she reached into her sack and took out a thick pair of socks and set off onwards and upwards. 
handily followed by some little asterisks for a nice break. Mm-hmm. In this section, a star or similar falls specifically as something small and blue enter Lanka Valley unsurreptitiously. Mm. A black colt rolls in with a bickering family within and changes in the air as a posh invite leads Nanny to prepare. Agnes, now resident in Margaret's old cottage, tries a witch's hat on for size, watched by two magpies. That's the extent of the rhyming. I was going to see what you rhymed with cottage then, and I'm very upset, but carry on. <laughs> the only thing I could think of to rhyme with cottage was frottage, and I don't want to put that word in our podcast. <laughs> I suppose pottage, but that's a bit... <laughs> anyway, Granny is definitely not looking for anything at all when she gets a knock on the door and flies out to a difficult birth and an even more deci- difficult decision to be made. Fire flickers in the castle muse, while Nanny and Agnes head to the castle proper to celebrate the naming of Magra's new baby. Mightily Oates, an Omnian priest brought to Lanka for the proceedings, steps out as Agnes chats to Queen Magret. Meanwhile, the highwayman becomes a handy snack as the coach dwellers discuss the country's witches. Flying home and not to the party, Granny spots the mist rolling in from Uberwald. Magret frets that Granny may have missed her invite to be a godmother. Nanny steps in as a placeholder as Verence tries his best at kinging, and politicians gather for the naming at midnight as Margaret hopes for a dramatic entrance at the last minute. She gets her wish, but it's not Granny bursting through the doors. She's busy at home and definitely not sulking. As Esmeralda Margaret notes spelling is introduced to the populace, Agnes meets a nice young man who seems to know her name. Nanny spots vampires in the throng and steps out to interrogate their Igor. After the handsome Vlad appears to enjoy a delicious garlic canapé, things get fuzzy around the edges as Agnes and Nanny meet the Count and his family, though Padisha, Agnes's inner voice, is steadfastly unaffected. As Oates suffers a headache, Agnes and Nanny head home, meeting centaurs on the way. Back at the cottage, Padita takes over and fills Nanny in, who's suddenly determined to take down the mind-altering magpires and wonders where Granny might be. As Hodgzar chases a lost phoenix, Nanny and Agnes storm the castle, only to become incredibly reasonable around the charming vampires who plan on making Lanka their own personal duchy. Vlad notices Agnes's resistance as Padita gets violent and they storm back out the way they came. The next morning, Granny's cottage is determinedly grannyless, and Magpies watch as Nanny and Agnes arrive. The inventory's in threes as there's been a shift in hierarchy and Granny takes to the woods. I like the rhyming start. Yeah, I wanted to keep it going and then I realised that I... There, there's only so many minutes. Yes. Helicopter and loincloth watch. Helicopters. Very few helicopters, but I'm optimistic about the Phoenix representing eventually. Granny did fly on her broomstick. She did fly on her broomstick, which is definitely a form of helicopter, as we've discussed many, many times. Mm-hmm. Loincloth? And, uh, hint of loincloth implied around the troll. Sure. Oh, I imagined I mean, him in some kind of guard uniform, but. Well, no, they didn't have a uniform that could fit him, apart oh. from the helmet that's tied on with string. Quite right, yes. Well, so I assume he's got some sort of official loincloth. Mm-hmm. Other bits that we keep track of. Death's here. Hello, Death. Hi, Death. Hi, Death. We're sort of open on the disc in that we've got the star flying over. Yeah. I'm going to allow it. Sure. And keeping track of when we are, it's at the end of the century of the fruit bat. Got it. So we're yes. going to be dragged kicking and screaming out of it. Yes, that has been confirmed. Uh, Got to be be kicked and dragged, kicked and screaming into it before we can be dragged, kicked and screaming out of it, of course. Can't I just saunter towards it? Do I have to be dragged, kicking and screaming? Yes. If you will insist on dribbling those candles everywhere. I like the aesthetic. (laughs) 
Quotes, 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 quotes. Me. You can go first. Thank you. This is when Granny is thinking to herself about some of the hard decisions she's had to make. Mm -hmm. And after the time she made the decision to have a murderer hanged. Yes. The villagers had said justice had been done and she'd lost patience and told them to go home then and pray to whatever gods they believed in that it was never done to them. The smug mask of virtue triumphant could be almost as horrible as the face of wickedness revealed. Ooh, that's a good line. Isn't it? Isn't it? I think it almost... Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's the same kind of attitude as um, when we were talking about how, well, if you want justice so much, you throw them off the cliff kind of thing. It's the... Mm. You know, that I didn't mean I should throw them off the cliff, just they ought to be thrown off the cliff. Yeah. It's the the same kind of along those lines of taking taking joy in justice instead of seeing it as a necessity. Pratchett, I think, gets some of his best rage at humanity out with Granny. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's so vent. well done. Yes. Unlike Vimes, she doesn't have to put a cork in it to go Do and have dinner with the her. Right wife. Way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, mine's a much shorter quote, but um, poignant, I feel. Oh. I didn't know boys had glass balls. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, really wanted to... <laughs> I didn't want to shatter that silence. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be so many big, heavy things to talk about. I really needed the balls joke in there somewhere. Now, here is another example of when being American would be a bit of a drawback because I didn't know buoys had balls. Doesn't work as well, does it? Yeah. I'm always still mildly confused by the American pronunciation, buoy. Mm-hmm. It does make sense if you look at the word. And it does. Well, no. I feel like... Bu- buoy. I'm, not, I'm not sure either of them makes much sense, but it's I've, buoyant. It's buoy. It's buoyant. It's, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's the country. good to spell anyway. Yeah. I feel like as a country that has Worcestershire, we just can't judge. Oh, for sure. Jack's playing Assassin's Creed that's set in England now that you play a Viking. Yeah. And Valhalla. Yeah. No, East Anglia. <laughs> Close enough. But when uh, the characters are saying the the county names, you start to see what the fuck happened because they pronounce them still in full and they're slightly different because that's yeah. how you would have said them back then. And it's like, oh God. <sighs> Our language is a mess. Isn't Let's talk it? about characters. Sure. Talking of messy language, or at least uh, only a cousin to ours at best, the Nakmak Fiegel mm-hmm. and their particular brand of Scots. Yes, yes. In case listeners hadn't guessed that this was meant to be a bit Scots, ah, stick it, your trackens. I forgot they were introduced in this book. If you cast your mind back to mm, Feet of Clay, small, short, very angry Scottish gnome, I assume is something of a precursor to bringing in the neck McFeagle. Yeah, well, while I was looking through the, the forums again, I found Pratchett commenting on this. They're saying, the genesis of the neck McFeagle went something like this. I wanted some background to Wee Mad Arthur of Feet and Clay, and so they'd be small. I'd been listening to Lorena McKennett singing The Stolen Child. Since, bracket C1, the tribe would be Cod Scottish, then Braveheart and Rob Roy were natural targets, which meant that they would be blue. They're small and blue. Dot dot dot. Now, what are what am I reminded of? No, give up. But it seems, somehow seems so right that they have just one female. Can't think why. Small blue. Nope. 
He seems like he's really <laughs> heavily hinting at something, and I don't know what it is. Oh, do you actually not know? Huh. It's the Smurfs. Oh, fucking Smurfette. Okay, yes, I did know that, I suppose. My brain was just not <laughs> making that a connection. Yeah. And five, a group of small creatures with just one female reminds me of social insects. So the colour of the queen would be bigger and in some way in charge. After that, it was just a matter of style. Excellent. I do love them. They are good fun, although they're only just introduced here. Mm-hmm. But also since reading this, there's a song, We Are the Knack McFeagal, from the Wintersmith, the Discworldy oh, album yeah, yeah. that Steel Ice Band did. If you, ha- if you are reading for the first time, don't go listen to the album because spoilers. spoilers. Mm-hmm. But it's a very good, catchy song. And I know because it's been in my head for the last week. Yep. If you're at Wintersmith or further in your Discworld adventure. I shall wear Midnight. Although the album's called Wintersmith, it definitely. Oh, no, yes, quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes a bit further, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Igor. Igor. And Id. A, a delightful character. Yeah. I'm is, gonna is, talk... is he your first Igor? I think we've had little hints of Igors around the edges, but mm-hmm. I think this is the most established Igor we've first had. First Igor in the spotlight. What a delight. I'm going to talk more about the vampire lore and vampire tropes next week, but I yeah. do love that Eagles like the the tropes subversion thing that the vampires are doing, and Eagles like yeah. strong determination to stick with the old traditions. Mm. So you've yeah. got to have plumes; it's traditional. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think some of these themes are like so spread out through the whole book that we're going to do a bit more jumping back and forth than we usually do, listeners. So we'll be yeah. calling back to section one and section two and so on, and the proper billowing curtains. Oh, yes. It's very important. One must have a proper billowing curtain. I might have to go back and listen to when I was talking about that in whatever it was, Lords and Ladies. I want to point out now I've put all these characters in a really weird order. I meant to reorganise them and then I got distracted. That's fine. Uh, so let's talk about Agnes. Sure. She's back. Yay. I didn't want to say at the end of Masquerade because spoiler, but I, we get to see Agnes again. I'm very mm-hmm. excited about this. I think you did anyway. Oh, yeah, probably. So I'll... <laughs> yes. Spoiler, she didn't like die at the end. Um, but yeah, no, she's back. And Perdita is more fully formed, I would say. Than yeah, before. Perdita's yeah. almost a whole character now, mm. as opposed to just some bitchy background lines. Yeah. Still some weird stuff about fatness. Not as bad. Not as bad, but it, it it's better without like a Christine next to her. Yeah. I feel like here it's more referencing the fact that people are shit than just being shit. Um, but there's still some lines like the outlying regions. He can He just can't seem to let go of saying movement Especially, in the outlying regions about fat no. people is, it, is this the third <laughs> nanny Og is meant to be on the more generous side as well and her outlying regions are rarely mentioned which is True. irksome there's also uh <laughs> i'm irked by the lack of nanny's outlying regions <laughs> sorry and her outlying regions are rarely mentioned is my new favorite line about nanny Og. <laughs> it's like geographical you know <laughs> The lesser known outlying regions of Naniog uh, are girt by sea. I'd say they're quite well known around Lanka. <laughs> I'm sorry, please continue. There's one weird Agnes fat phobia moment that rubbed me up the wrong way and I'm probably reacting to it more than I should. It's when they're outside the castle and looking at the food and there's vats of roast potatoes swimming in butter, which is, uh. God, I love that line. And Agnes says, do you think I could get a salad, hopefully? And it's this weird thing of like, it's okay that she's fat because she doesn't want to be. She knows that she wants a salad. So it's okay. 
yes, I think that is the kind of tangent, not tangential, but like micro, is that? Do you, what's what's the word where you try and compensate too much anyway i don't think people were aware of it in the 90s very much that doesn't mean it's not annoying to read so like i feel like and this still happens a lot but i feel like especially then it was like look i'm doing a nice thing yeah i'm not just saying she shoved her hand in the potato bat yeah look but it's a weird like like saying that that's a nice thing rather than because it would be mean if the fat person ate a bunch of potatoes, whereas yeah, yeah. everyone else there is eating a bunch of potatoes. It's this weird, like, moralizing, like, it's only okay to be fat if you know it's bad and that you don't want to be and you want a salad. Mm. And that yeah. said, and I know this isn't, well, I'm pretty sure this isn't the, the drive behind this. I have also read and heard a lot of people say that they just, there isn't a correct way to act in this situation. If you ask for a salad, then people think like that. If you, load your plate up with food and people are like of course she did um yeah that's fine for if, yeah. if you're talking about being yeah, a no, fat person but when you're talking I mean, about yeah, writing yeah. a fat yes, person that's, yes that's what i that's what i mean yes yeah um but, it's not a huge thing it just no, is no, something no. that always rugs me up a bit the wrong way i think i feel like pratchett has gotten so so much better at writing women at this point that when he mm. does it badly it's just a little bit more obvious yeah this barely would have stuck out as in fact i I doubt we'd have wasted a post-it note on it in the first five books. but <laughs> The first five books would not have had that many women that weren't blonde and tan. I think Herena the Her- henna-haired Harridan might be the only one. I don't even know what colour Agnes's hair is. I don't know, but it's very good and there's a lot great, of it. it's isn't it? It's big and it's good. I very I much imagine her as a brunette. Yeah. yeah. I feel like most of the people I know with big, good hair are brunette. I feel like I, I relate to Agnes enough that she I might look a bit like her, and I'm very happy with that, in that I've got a giant amount of brunette hair. You do have a giant amount of brunette hair. It does eat combs, so I found that line particularly relatable. <laughs> Fingers crossed I grow up to be Nanny Og and her outlying regions. I did then enjoy the immediate answer to that, though, which was, I hope not, to the, can I get a salad? <laughs> oh, yeah. Nanny Og has some fantastic one-liners in this. Oh, I love Nanny Og. Before we get to Nanny, though, brief shout out for the cameo from Casanunda. Yes, you're right. This is a very odd order. I love it. It made sense. It it made sense when I was writing it up. No, it didn't. Uh, yeah, Casanunda well, briefly page, turns up. It's page nearly. Yeah, kind of. Well, actually, no. You've jumped around. Okay, no, it's fine. Anyway, Casanunda, yes. Hello, Casanunda. Hello. Nice to see him, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'm glad he's there. And then we have... Does uh, he turn the... up again or is this it? I think this is it. Ah. This oh, isn't... what a shame. Nanny could do with a nice date after the day she's had. I don't even think I feel like it, he might be there because there would have been like a subplot somewhere with him and Nanny and then there just wasn't room for it. Yeah, but he's a handy dandy witness. But he is a handy dandy witness. It's nice to see something through the eyes of a familiar character, even mm. if you've got to look up to see it. The bit, the, the elongated confusion with the highway man was quite good. The, what, the death scene? Yeah, yeah. No, I am no, not here don't. to take your money. <laughs> Just to be very clear about that. Oh, I love how polite death is in that situation. We're very clearly being furious. <laughs> I don't have time for this. And then we have the the quite reverend, mightily praiseworthy I.E. who exalteth um, oats. Mm-hmm. I did not practice saying that. I quite possibly should have done. Oh, that was good. I wonder if he's ever met Constable Visit. Uh, maybe they went on one of the missions together. I like to think when they were teenagers, they went knocking on people's doors with leaflets. I like to think maybe they write to each other every now and then. 
He's not quite hit the point of giving out explanatory pamphlets. He's uh, just sort of optimistically preaching to an empty forest. Now, would you say becoming a priest is slightly past the point of handing out pamphlets? Quite possibly, actually. That's a higher level of devotion, I suppose, because Constable visit the infidel with explanatory pamphlets, only does it on his days off from the police force, doesn't he? True, but then that means he is just devoting all of his spare time to it. It's a different level. Whereas Oates has kind of mm. made it his day job. Mm. It's a bit like, I don't know, being really into cooking at home versus being a chef, I guess. Mm. So Oates is the chef of Omnianism. Omnianism? Yeah. yeah, sure. Omnianism. No, no, fuck. I think this is dead end. Let's it. carry on. <laughs> Omnism. Let's about, <laughs> Omnism. Let's talk about Granny. Yeah. Yeah, Granny. Good old Granny. Granny's having a time of it. One of my points for saying this is one of the best, if not the best, witch's book mm. is that Granny actually isn't really there interacting with the other witches and isn't in the action that much until we get to the final part. Mm. Everything she's doing here is it's not really part of the main action. It's establishing the mood she's in. And I know it's a bit counterintuitive to say, oh, it's such a good witch's book because Granny's not around as much. But Granny does her best work in Act 3, in all of the witches' books. It's, yes, she's there when they're moving the kingdom in Weird Sisters, but it's really the big face-off at the end of Weird Sisters. Mm -hmm. It's facing off against her sister at the end of Witches Abroad. It's controlling the bees in Lords and Ladies. Yes. Granny's the best part of the action when she knows when to take herself out, and obviously she's not actually sentient or real because this is a fictional book so Pratchett is best at writing witches because he knows when and where to use granny and not to just keep her there because she's good fun to write like the luggage <laughs> not that i would wish to compare granny to a murderous suitcase <laughs> who do you think would win in a fight granny versus the luggage granny yeah because fair. the luggage would know not to fight yeah, the luggage point. would sit down and allow itself to be tamed on the end of yeah. hair the luggage in this case is a unicorn but but, the luggage would beat Grebo in a fight. Yes. But then let him out again because Nanny looked angry or upset. Yeah. One of the two. I also think that having Granny on her own gave her space for the kind of uh, descent into madness slash chromedom. Yes. Which is one of the best written bits of Granny those few Absolutely. pages i love her waiting the the rest of them sort of speculating about her mm. definitely waiting for the most dramatic moment mm. to enter the christening because she would oh yeah and margaret's little side thing of i've never actually caught her waiting for a dramatic moment yes you or i would be leaning against a wall in a corridor but she just knows when to walk in mm. and agnes having that really great realization when she's watching margaret and Varence wait to enter and she's like well, no, this is the thing. It's the dramatic moment when you enter. Mm -hmm. You're not. Why are you standing there waiting for a moment? You've just got to do it. Mm. Which Agnes sort of being almost the best witch at getting into Granny's head or understanding things the way Granny understands them, understanding that you make your own dramatic moment. Yes. And I, I'm going to be out of my lane here and switch around Magrat and Hodjach because this is a good time to talk about Magrat. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Magrat. I think that. Agnes kind of shocks Magrat with how open she is about her speculation about Granny. And yeah. Magrat has kept her mouth shut about so much of this for so long. And Agnes must surely be echoing a lot of what she thought, but still somehow she she's like, no, you can't say it. But I also think Magrat's gone through a, a lot of character growth, especially from like weird sisters Magrat to now. Mm. 
like when she's sort of quite happily like winking at Agnes as they're trying to get ready for the naming ceremony and Grebo's on the throne. Yes. And I've got a bit of confidence now. Margaret's grown enough to know that there's no point saying it. It won't make a difference. Whereas I think Agnes has still got this kind of bolshy youth to her. She's a very different kind of young witch from who Margaret was. Yeah, uh, that might be part of why Margaret seems a little unsettled by it as well. Yeah, it's There's the so speaking, many similarities and so many differences. The speaking before thinking thing and Nanny's reaction when Perdita says something really bitchy about Granny. I can't remember the page now, but Nanny immediately just smacks her one. Mm, yeah. And then goes, but then is very much like, right, well, that's that settled. Yeah, yeah. It's very near the end of the section. The fact that Magrat still clearly cares a little bit about the fact that the witches talk about it like she'll give up queening one day and come back to her proper job. Yeah, it's a really nice little section. She's open about it, which is interesting, having just said all that about her not being open about. She's sort of, I want to be treated as queen all the time, but not, you know, I want them to know I'm queen, but I don't want them to treat me as queen. Yeah. It's nice that she still, you know, she really came into her queendom uh, at the end of Lords and Ladies. It's nice to know she's still got her weird little bit about it. That's an interesting gendered word that I never really thought about. It's still a kingdom if one is a queen, and I don't like that. No, me neither. Let's fix that. Let's call everything Queen. The United Queendom. Yep. Calling it that. Right. Now let's talk about Hodgesar. Ah. Hodgesar. Ah. Ah. He's so sweet. Poor I, uh, we we've met him. We didn't really need to talk about him. I think I only put this in because there's one line I love, which is he was like a man with a big dictionary who couldn't find the index. <laughs> oh, which makes Less and less sense the more you think about the, sen- the the sentence, because dictionaries don't really have indices, that's the point. <laughs> yes, but ties in nicely to when he's looking for Phoenix under F. F. Yes. And yes, this is a nice little flag, Phoenix flag planted in the ground for later, isn't it, as well? So it's wor- some, worth mentioning him. There is a lot of very good setup and payoff in this mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then King Verence. Yeah. He's, he's working hard. He's kinging. He's trying to put Lanka on the map, which is a terrible idea. He means as, as well. As is now shown to be the case. Interesting that he's one of the only people who's visibly fighting against the vampires. Yeah, he's well, I mean, he's got a very strong will kind of combined with mm. subservience. If you think about his his journey, if, you know, the, the fool has to be the fool for whoever's in charge and sleeping at the door of the master and Margaret's realising in Lords and Ladies that now he sleeps at the door to his kingdom because yeah. the kingdom is his master. Like oh, he yeah, means so well. Yeah. And so I think he's really, really caught in this, you know, as much as he can comprehend what's going on, what he owes to his kingdom mm. and this sort of full subservience thing he's got that makes him quite susceptible. I do like the, as he's having that little rant, he says, if Clatch sneezes, Ankh-Morpork catches a cold, which yeah. considering we're only two books off from Jingo, yeah. It's quite nice to think about how the events of Jingo were affecting the wider world. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting nice, that but... Verence was probably fretting over his news, how was news, scrolls. Yes. We don't have pigeons. Yes, pigeons, thank you. His daily news pigeons. And the rest of the kingdom had no fucking idea. No. And he probably told Magrat, and Magrat was like, oh dear. Yeah, well. Anyway, let's <laughs> put on this ridiculous fucking rough. And then, yeah, going into the vampires, vampires. Yes, it's peers, pyres. I suppose it is vampire. 
it's vampire. I'm just trying to find as many stupid mm. ways to say it as possible. I think they deserve that. Vlad says the line, I like a woman with spirit and then Fowler deserves anything that comes to him and more. Absolutely. But I want to know where he got his waistcoat embroidered with peacocks because I want one. Yes. And I'm not going to embroider peacocks on shit myself because I have a life. I was about to say, I can do that. I can't do that. No, Francine, do not embroider peacocks on anything for me. No, I mean, mean, you don't, even if I wanted to, you don't want me to. I'm struggling at the moment to get forget me nots down. I feel like peacocks are a few steps up from that. I'm embroidering my denim jacket. Oh, cool. So, Vlad, yes, he's a little sleazy fuck. He's a sleazy little fuck. And Padita fancies him and then hates him. I, I like Pedita. how mercurial Padita is because it's very relatable she's to being a teenage, teenager. Girl. <laughs> it's like, oh, but he's cool. He's got a cool waistcoat. But he's a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Still like his waistcoat. Kill him. I went through that emotional journey many times at house parties as a teenager. <laughs> yes. Fuck yes. <laughs> oh, it's lucky we weren't at balls. The count, the count, as you say. Ah, ah, ah. The count. Such a good description. <laughs> One for sorrow, ah, two for joy, ah. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, carry on. No, that's the best thing that's ever happened on the podcast. I think we should just stop now. I think we're done. No, no, I'm good. I can keep going. Uh, the count gets a really good description because Agnes has like gone into kind of pod people mode, but is still. Mm got that little bit at the back of her brain so she's expecting uh, a somber man with a exciting widow's peak hairstyle and an opera cloak yes. she's not sure why she's expecting that <laughs> he said he looks like a gentleman of independent means and inquiring mind perhaps the kind of man who goes for long walks in the morning and spends the afternoons improving his mind in his own private library or doing small interesting experiments on parsnips and never ever worrying about money like uh, a English country vicar of the very much so. I think another part of the description is something like, and he had the air of a man who'd just read a very interesting book and was going to tell you about it, which is which, possibly our vibe at all times. Are we vampires? Oh, I hope so. We might be. You know how I'd like to be immortal. Lacrimosa. Lacrimosa means uh, shit, where have I put it? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Right at the bottom. There we go. It's a uh, Latin for tearful one. Ah, of course. Well, I suppose the uh, she should be careful with all the eye makeup. Oh, I don't know. Smeared black eye makeup is the correct look for her. It's a good aesthetic. No, mm. it's fair. Agnes hates her on first sight. Good. Which is fair. She's kind of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And then we have Nanny, obviously, who's having a lovely time until she isn't. Yes. I'm trying to remember the exact moment she isn't. I think it's... Obviously, she's stressing about the vampires, but I think it's the moment she realizes Granny's gone that's her real switch, especially when she realizes this whole thing of the hierarchy, which is such a good plot point, this idea that Mm -hmm. Granny's taking herself out of the equation because there's a new mother, which means there's a new Mm. other one. Yes, no, that's it. Yes, the moment Agnes realizes that she's kind of out of herself, not the glass balls, but when she just explains to Agnes what she's thinking instead of vaguely alluding to magical powers and letting her ask more questions yeah and nanny gets the really good line of she's been herself lately talking about granny weatherwax which is one of her most perspective perspective oh shit they're perspicacious perspicacious thank you (laughs) moments 
because granny <laughs> nanny is so often this comic relief who really does know what's going on and is being very clever behind the scenes and understands what's happening with nanny it's nice to see her kind of thrown off her access axis mm. a little bit there's also some just just as i say some beautiful nanny one-liners in this repent oh, my... me cheek i can't start repenting at my time of life i'd never get any work done anyway i ain't sorry for most of it <laughs> agnes trying to explain Padita and saying, you know part of you that wants to do all the things you don't dare do like maybe rip off all your clothes and run naked in the rain uh Padita's that part of me and i said really i've always been that part of me <laughs> and finally now off you go and look conspicuous added nanny a lady wearing a two foot tall pointed black hat <laughs> i hope she's worn her red boots for the occasion Ooh, it does say she was having one of her many daughters-in-law polish them was she not ah they were polishing were, they, were they red they were taking lint off the hat and ironing a petticoat i know that who irons a fucking petticoat well if you've got three spare daughter in, daughters-in-law why not i suppose i guess so i believe life is too short location wise obviously we are firmly steadfastly boots down in the kingdom of red Lanka. boots yeah sorry red boots yeah you're good red Thanks boots down in the kingdom of Lanka. the good thing about having ebook version is you can just search for boots that is a lot better than my frantic flicking yeah. but i uh i enjoy but, it but not as good for foley it adds verisimilitude oh well done after we couldn't say perspicacious <laughs> that was ambitious and it. you pulled it off <laughs> good job Lanka gets established really kind of cinematically. I don't know if you remember talking about like the first books, like Colour and Magic, like Fantastic, where you're kind of getting like the strings Mm. as the disc is introduced and the turtle slowly swims into view, Mm -hmm. done with varying degrees of success in the different TV adaptations. Yes. The uh, PS1 animation of the turtle at the beginning of the soul music adaptation being my favourite by quite some. (laughs) (laughs) But because you have the star as it kind of crackles over the mountain slopes and and it says what is it under it the land itself began to fall away and the fire was reflected off walls of blue ice as the light dropped into the beginnings of a canyon like you can see it Mm. it's such a good way to do this and come into this network of valleys and patchwork of forests and yeah land on this tiny kingdom it's great yeah and then there's kind of a throwback to it right at the end of this section where nanny's uh, granny's looking down and seeing that the mist has puddled in this valley Yes. Uh, yeah. And she's a very specific mist. Yeah. From Uberwald. Is it Uberwald, by the way? Should we try and be dickheads about this? Uberwald. Uberwald. Yes, Uberwald. Should we in. try and be the little German boy? <laughs> Nine. Nine, little German boy. Don't go to Uberwald. <laughs> oh, what is this? <laughs> in Magpie. No, little German boy. <laughs> Magenpie. <laughs> I'm Magenpinen. Right, we we need to stop, Francie. We need to stop. We are a sensible intellectual podcast talking about the book Carpe Jugulum by yep. Terry Pratchett, the 23rd Discworld novel. Yes. Thank you for rooting me back in reality there. Speaking of being rooted in reality, actually, the philosophy of the people of Lanka is great, especially coming off this beautiful, big cinematic opening coming in. And then the, the people of Lanka have heard of the turtle and the elephants. And sounds about right. Like Turtles that. can shift a fair load. Elephants are pretty strong. No major gaps in the thesis. And uh, quite happy with it. I enjoy that type of philosophy. Relevant elephant. Relevant elephant. Yay! There was an, no such thing as a fish. Which was the, the, the latest episode of that that came out today had a whole section on elephants in which they mentioned a website 
about all the various things that elephants can do with their trunks communication-wise, and there's hundreds of them, and I will link to that website. They mentioned a lot of elephant facts, and I think you'll understand why only this one stuck in my mind, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, one of the rituals, one of the communications that elephants can do with their trunk is after a female has had sex, um, if she stands there and the, the sperm, I think, falls to the dust, some of it, then mm-hmm. the others might touch some of it to their trunk and then pirouette away from her in some kind of celebration. I, it, it's not, it's not, not a sentence that kind of goes away easily, and yet it it never makes any more sense. I don't have words. Mm. I'm going to yeah. have to let that one. Yeah, just let that one pirouette. Pirouette, <laughs> pirouette away. Yes. Should we take a quick break? Do you want to talk about the philosophy? I just interrupted you. No, that was pretty much all I had. Okay. I like the um the line that philosophers uh, only said this kind of up in the air stuff if they were really sure where their next meal was coming from. Yeah, which is yes, correct. Anyway, let's just pirouette first. to the kettle. Good idea, Francine. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I love it. Never change. Right. Little bits we liked. Little bits we liked. What did you like? What did I like? Because I, I like? put myself first rather presumptuously, considering I don't have any page numbers. Francine, black and white motif. Yeah, I just like Pratchett's doing that cool thing where he just threads the entire book with. Yeah, it's a motif, isn't it? It's a. Yeah. Yeah, every he mentions black and white thinking a lot, like the invitation and the black and white and gold and the everything's all very color coordinated. As you say, it's quite cinematic. This one again, isn't it? And it is. this would be—I don't think this will ever get like adapted for screen because it's—it's it's a weird one because it's like the fifth in a story arc. But it would be so good on screen. It would be so fun. Yeah, apparently the play was kind of oddly received by a lot of people because of that. Because it's really hard to find the balance of how much you explain. Yeah. From the previous. But yeah, and then what was the other? Well, of course, you oh, got the magpies and the. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, the magpies. So there's a couple of magpies landing on the tap in the moonlight. And uh, when she's flying back from the midwifery job, she's thinking to herself, and any mid- midwife out in isolated cottages on bloody nights would know all the other little secrets never to be told. Yes. From the rhyme, <laughs> which will come to later. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna be no, I, I, I just like, I like it's, all of the, it's not quite foreshadowing, it's not quite flag planting, it's just themery. <laughs> it's really weird as well, because obviously the magpies are intentionally, you know, quite mm. sinister. The the vampire family are the magpies, mm. and they are obviously not the good guys in this book, but I have a weird attachment to magpies, because it's the nickname for Newcastle United, which is my oh. football team, because my dad was from Newcastle. And you do like your Corvid. And I love corvids. Although the crow, I feel like, was compared in a favourable light to the magpies when Mightly Oats was compared by Agnes to a, a ragged little crow. Yes, very true. And from from a serious discussion of clever use of motifs to an imaginary pole, which made me laugh. You've just written here, imagine a pole, and I'm doing my best. <laughs> Please imagine a pole. It's stripey. Unfortunately, it's not available at the moment, which is why we're imagining it. It's when the vampires are coming into Lanka and the trolls on the bridge waiting for people to come in, doing things properly. Mm. And there's this sort of metaphysical conundrum, as it's described, mm-hmm. before Igor disgu- decides to play the stupid ser- uh, servant of uh, the troll saying, well, I have to stamp something or you can't come in. I won't lift the pole mm. that is definitely there. 
It pops up in a few books, doesn't it, where perhaps it just highlights the kind of absurdity of bureaucracy a lot of the time. It's like, yes, it's imaginary rules. We're going to get stuck on them. <laughs> but it's the way the uh, troll is just takes it so seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, are you right? I'm lifting the pole. Here it goes. Look at it pointing up in the air like that. What's his name? Beef something. Big Jim Beef. Big Jim Beef. <laughs> which Grant, Nanny describes as, you know, similar to a guy, a human calling themselves Rocky. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Speaking um, of the names, actually, Thomas Peerless is in, in a book that highlighted all the stupid names specifically. I liked Thomas Peerless, who was mentioned. Uh, my vote goes to James. What the hell's that cow doing in here? Poor chick. Oh, yes. More of a classic. That's fair. Things left behind in a dresser. Oh, yeah. So when Agnes is thinking to herself about Magrat. Yeah. I've seen the things you left behind in the cottage. Yes. The woman had left echoes of herself in the cottage, an old bangle lost under the bed, rather soppy notes in some of the ancient notebooks, vases full of desiccated flowers. You can build up a very strange view of someone via the things they leave behind the dresser. I was wondering what view people might build up of you. I wonder what view people will up of me other than doesn't hoover that really. Mm. Just looking around my desk because I can't see my dresser. I mean, obviously, we've got too many post-it notes. I've got a book here about limpet pie because I never tidied that away after last week. We've got paintbrushes. Um, I feel like it's somewhat cheating looking around this because it's also my sewing table. I can see four notebooks, my laptop because I use that along with the computer when I'm studying. Mm. A small blue duck, which I will lift up to the webcam for the uh, patrons. Yay. This lovely little blue duck that you made me so I can bitch about coding to him. Does he work? He does work. Okay. He's a very good listener. There's uh, five pairs of scissors, uh, a token bag for a board game that I need to fix. Good. Assorted bobbins. Yeah. I think it, it, it's almost parallel to the... Uh, did I ask this on the podcast or just in the group chat of the the five items that you would use to summon you i think it was in the podcast yeah five Um, items you put in a circle to summon one of us yes in your case i'm just using five cups of coffee oh we need the cements in there and the 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 Uh, all right three cups of coffee a packet of cements and a biro thank you (laughs) what have you got there i thought red wine was thematically appropriate perfect oh yeah and vlad being like no don't have the white wine have the red wine Ah, what dick. a prick! Like, like I know yeah, it's thematic. because he's a vampire and I shit, know. but like, don't order my fucking drink for me, dude. Yeah, he's also he's be, he's being he's being one of those dating guru dick ads, isn't he? Yeah, um, the the play the playbook kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, good waistcoat though. I bet he really likes Jordan, Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules for Life. Oh, I bet he does. Sorry, Vlad is now every fuckboy. Although he won't subscribe to the alpha theory, of course, because we don't get along with wolves. <laughs> that is the best pronunciation of wolf I've ever had. Wolves <laughs> well, if you're going heard. to go mental with Magfia. <laughs> Vampira. <laughs> no, Vampira is something different. Uh, the Royal Society for the Betterment of Mankind, Francine. Let's better ourselves. <laughs> Please. I just rather enjoyed that Sean Og is taking upon himself on Thursday afternoons, if he has any spare time, to better mankind and has so far invented draft excluders, which has earned him a small medal and I think deservedly so. Yes, draft excluders are a godsend. I've I've sewed a couple myself this week. I'm very proud of you. I got rid of a bunch of clothes that were past donating or fixing Mm -hmm. a few months ago, to be fair. 
And then I needed a bunch of scraps to go inside my, my draft excluders. Oh, you should have said. I have well, then I found them in the end. Of them. Yeah. I found another bag full of clothes under the bed. But, <laughs> but I had to look for them. <laughs> I have a basket for fabric scraps because obviously I end up with quite a lot from trimming things and bits that aren't big enough to use for anything else. Watch out. That's how the triangle shirtwaist fire happened. I, I don't think that's likely. Okay. I'm quite good at disposing saying, of don't eventually. throw your cigar in there. Because I, I often so, smoke cigars around my fabric scraps. I don't know what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a fair point. <laughs> I'll allow that. Anyway. Oh, yeah. There's, so I like the sort of reference back to the young witches and how the attitudes to witchcraft have changed in the country as things mm. go on. Um, being a witch was an honourable trade in the mountains, but only the young ones invested in real crystal balls and coloured knives and drivelly candles. The old ones stuck with kitchen cutlery, fishing floats, bits of wood. Any fool could be a witch with a runic knife, but it took skill to be one with an apple corer, which is just such a nice throwback to the previous yeah. books from Margaret learning that a bread knife in the boot is the best. Yes. Granny's face off with the young witches in Lords and Ladies, which is where we first meet Agnes. Mm. And this kind of idea that Agnes has somewhat graduated to the more serious school of witchcraft. Yeah. But also just as a world building thing, knowing it's still happening and one yeah. can we go with the young witches in the future. Yeah. And and a theme that uh plays off I think we've said before, haven't we, that Pratchett likes everyday objects being yes. tools. Like the the, the, we- the peasant weapons and the it's also quite nice if you compare it to the the tropes subversion stuff with the vampires. They're trying to give up these old-fashioned dribbly mm. candles that the young witches are embracing. Yes. Fucking Vlad. <laughs> Fucking Vlad. Speaking of vampires. Magpires. <laughs> you want to talk about magpies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, so magpie rhymes. And this is reference. You know what I... I did actually note down which page they were talking about it. When it's right at the end again. Yeah, Nanny and Agnes go to Granny's cottage. It's page 124 in the Coggy paperback. Magpies is turning up and chattering them, and Agnes is saying one for sorrow, two for joy, and Nanny says two for mirth. And they have these conflicting magpie rhymes. Mm. So the one I know that I grew up with, and that I think is sort of the most common one that most people know, one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never to be told. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a much more of a kind of English superstition. So people abroad that are listening, I don't know if magpie rhymes are a thing where you are, if there's folklore around them. Yeah, um, I, don't, I think I mentioned before, like m- one of my few practicing superstitious things is that I'll mourning Mr. Magpie. Yes, if you see a solo magpie, it's bad luck and counteract it by wishing him good morning or asking after his wife. But so I wanted to look into partly the version that Nanny says and mm-hmm. other versions that exist. So just brief bit of the history of them. The first sort of magpie rhyme was recorded around 1780 in a note on John Brown's popular antiquities. Mm-hmm. But only the first four lines, one for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, four for birth. Well, there you go. Slightly later in publishing, the longer version, Michael Aislaby Denham's Proverbs and Popular Sayings of the Seasons, published in 1846. Golly. This is considered the sort of first proper one in print. Uh, one for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, four for birth, five for heaven, six for hell, seven for the devil, his own self. That's nannies, isn't it? That's nannies. But I was stupidly spending a while Googling all of this shit before I realised where Pratchett would have probably looked for an alternative magpie rhyme, mm. and that I also happened to have a handy copy of Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. 
Oh. Which I should have probably looked at first before I spent so fucking long Googling. And under magpie, the old rhyme about magpies in Brewer's Phrase and Fable. Phrase and Fable. Yeah, I also didn't think to look at folklore of Discworld. Probably should have done. No, it's cool. I'll, I'll just, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'll have just referenced Brewer's, but just in case. Yeah. And this is an older Scottish rhyme, it's considered. And it's not quite full on Scots how it's written, but close enough. One sorrow, two's mirth, three's a wedding, four's a birth, five's a christening, six a dearth, seven's heaven, eight is hell, and nine's the devil, his own cell. Oh. oh. So, again, sort of variation. And from the Oxford Dictionary of Superstitions, which was published in the 90s, we have one for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a wedding, four for a birth, five for rich, six for poor, seven for a witch, I can tell you no more. Mm. I couldn't actually find the origins of that going to further back than the Oxford Dictionary of Superstitions, but that's obviously another version. It's very regional, yes. um, but there was a TV series that ran from 1968 to 1980 called Magpie. Oh. It was a kid's like magazine show, but like Blue Peter, but a bit more poppy. And the theme tune for that was the Magpie rhyme, the one that's now most commonly known, one for sorrow, two for joy. It ends on eight's a wish, nine a kiss, and ten is a bird you must not miss. And the sort of theory around magpie rhymes and regional ones falling out of favour is that that was such a well-known show that that became the one that people knew in the modern lexicon. Okay. But it seems like the sorrow mirth may actually be kind of older. But listeners, if you've got like a weird region-specific one or you've heard different versions of it, please let me know because this is really fascinating. Yeah, I have, I have read something about Pratchett or someone associated with them, spending a long time researching these and asking everyone about magpie rhymes. In fact, I think Pratchett might have asked every... This might be in his slip of the keyboard where he's asking everyone in the queue what magpie rhyme they knew. Yeah. I'll have a look at it. Uh, but yeah, the folklore of Discworld, you've come up with exactly the same stuff. Uh, I have one thing to add. Apparently, another way you can counteract the bad luck of a single magpie is to recite this charm. I crossed the magpie and the magpie crossed me. Devil take the magpie and God save me. Nah. I think I'm going to stick to. Sounds less polite than just saying good morning. Yeah. Cause you. How's your life? The thing is, normally, I, I, you know, if you're on your own and you're walking along and you sort of, you know, very morning, magpie, you don't want people to know (laughs) that you're doing it. But I taught it to my little nephew who's six. So walking anywhere with him and seeing a magpie means an exuberant scream of morning, Mr. Magpie. (laughs) I found it. Uh, It's in this book. It's the introduction to this book. It's the. By Terry Pratchett. Not long after I did this, I did a book signing on the South Coast where I took the opportunity to ask practically every person in the queue to say the magpie rhyme. I was doing research for Cafe Jugulum. Every single one of them recited, with greater or lesser accuracy, the version of the rhyme that used to herald the beginning of the 1960s and 70s TV programme Magpie. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a bad rhyme, but some, like some cuckoo in the nest, it was forcing out all the other versions that existed around the country. Then a distinguished-looking lady was in front of me with a book, and I asked her, with some inexpressible hope in my heart, how many versions of the magpie rhyme she knew. After a moment's thought, she said, about 19. And that is how I met Jacqueline Simpson, who has been my friend and occasional consultant on matters of folklore, and uh, is the co-author of... So that's from the intro to the folklore of Discworld. Oh, amazing. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, so you came up with exactly the same research as they did. So well done. Yep. Uh, without job. asking many people in a queue because I haven't had a handy book signing. <laughs> they want you to write a book first these days, I suppose. We did just ask our listeners 
Oh yeah. This is yeah, our, we've outsourced our, This it. is the thing we have an audience for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That leaning out the window and yelling. <laughs> I feel like this is more efficient than that. So, yes, you were there, is... boy. <laughs> Recite via the magpie rhyme. <laughs> Why it's more the... for sorrow, sir. <laughs> Why am I doing a bad English accent? <laughs> I was going to say. I'm from you this country, have God damn it. <laughs> yes, but you're not from a Dickens novel. I might be. If I'm a vampire, are, I might be. You're sewing draft excluders to stop yourself from getting chill blains. You might as well be in a fucking Dickens novel. I'm anyway. Um, <gasps> the rule of three, Francine. Oh, fuck. Right, okay. Are we going into deeper folklore? No, I've skimmed over folklore in this because otherwise you're going to take fucking forever. Okay. So the rule of three, Mm -hmm. we kind of touch upon here and we go into a bit later as well. uh, Granny has left everything out in threes and obviously she's trying to symbolise the fact that a coven comes in a three. three Yeah, it's the the hierarchy shift. Everyone's got to move up one. Now Margaret's had a baby. Yes, that's so. Oh, which, by the way... We do have a mention of Nanny's outlying regions, don't we? Because she says, I can't be a hag at my time of life. My bras won't fit. Ah, yes, that's the one. <laughs> but it's not specifically no, no, said. No, 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 no. It's just geographically. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> so rule of three. Mm-hmm. It pops up in fucking everything. It's in art and photography. You've got the rule of thirds. Uh, it's uh, mythology and religion. You've got uh, the holy trifecta. You've got in lots of different religions, you've got rules of three. You've got the three fates. Mm-hmm. Um, in folklore, everything's in fucking threes. You've got three daughters, three sons, three magical items, three billy goats, gruff, whatever. Comedy, rule of three. Comedy, rule of three, uh, known as the, what's it called? Uh, the triple, apparently. Yes. And marketing and copywriting comes up a lot. Music, you've got the triads of chords, all, all of this stuff. For our purposes today, obviously, we'll focus a little bit on rhetoric and literature because mm-hmm. that's kind of Pratchett's thing. So things coming in threes are just more memorable. And I was hoping to find a definite reason for that. And there are theories, but there aren't. Yeah. Like a, this is why it's the, it's the smallest amount of things you need to make a pattern. Mm-hmm. Two lines, two dots make a line, not a pattern. Yeah. Yes. In literature, you have three acts of a play. Any mm-hmm. story, you have the start, the middle, and the end. And they are rising action, falling action, and denouement. Thank you. The three parts of a True Shall Make You Fret podcast recap <laughs> is a classic example, of course. <laughs> That's why we split the books into threes. <laughs> and the rule of three is used in just so many different contexts and it's so effective in all of them. So if you think about the most memorable lines, like like safety things, if people want you to remember something safety, we still remember stop, look and listen mm-hmm. to cross the road. We remember that. No one's yelled that at us since we were little. Stop, drop and roll if you're on fire. We all yeah. know that. Da, 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 da. I'm not sure it's what I actually have done when I've been on fire, but I remember it. <laughs> You'd be on fire like, ah, the rule of three. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Even just repeating like the same thing three times in a row is more memorable than doing it other way. So like location, location, location. Yes. There are two in, in rhetoric, two main segments of the rule of three like that. So you've got hen diatrice, which is three successive words to express one central idea. So mm-hmm. you've got liberté, egalité, fraternité. Yes. For instance. And then you have the the tricolon or the triad, which is three parallel elements 
which is what we're looking at here. So it's Veni Vidi Veterinari. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. It's the maiden, the mother, the mother and, and the, the other one. Yes. As a writing device, the third is often unexpected. You set yes. up a pattern and then you break it. And that works because surprise works in comedy, it works in drama. Mm-hmm. It just, it engages your mind to see a pattern coming along and then go, oh, oh. Yes. For that reason, a lot of tricolons set up in rhetoric and especially speeches, the third one is the longest. Yeah. If if they're not all exactly the same length, you put the longest one at the end. Yeah, the father, the Holy Ghost and the son doesn't quite work. Yes. (laughs) And you put the surprise at the end. Another great example is from God's Guards. So you got the three rules of the librarians of time and space are one, silence. Two, books must be returned no later than the last date shown. And three? Do not interfere with the nature of causality. Quite right. And you've remembered it. <laughs> I'm I really glad you with... did, otherwise I'd have had to edit that. <laughs> I interfered with the nature of causality once. Got away with it. And then you hit the orangutan creep up behind you. <laughs> and so in this one, though, bring it back a little bit from the realms of everything else ever. The maiden, the, <laughs> the, maiden, the mother and the crone, or... And the other one, which is the longer one. But even crone, although it's shorter, it gets rid of the alliterative action. It's a little bit of a shock because maiden, mother, uh, safe, nice roles. And then you throw in there the crone or the hag. And the the syllable thing as well. The maiden, the mother, the crone. Yes, exactly. Yes. The the other thing I want to find out is how international it is, how universal it is. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be like, obviously, it's a bit harder to look properly at all the examples you could of like copywriting and things but certainly things like folklore like japan's three wise monkeys was one that sprang to mind um yeah and a lot of fairy See tales no, hear no speak no yeah yeah a, lo- a lot of fairy tales have been translated i'm going to have to assume haven't been translated so much that the numbers were completely changed but yeah from, no. from all over the world it does seem to be three and i like that and i like the three witches and I like that Pratchett has a natural flair for the triads. And I liked also that one of the things I was reading about it, I think it might have been in the Elements of Eloquence, which of course had a wonderful write-up on it, and I will, as always, recommend everyone go read it, (laughs) was talking about how uh, three makes a list. Yeah. But two is two sides of the coin, is a pairing, is perhaps something a little liminal. Yeah. Should we talk about the liminal? So I'm going to preface all of this by saying that I am not a fucking scholar of Gothic literature. I did half an A-level. I did not finish said A-level. But I've refreshed my memory somewhat (laughs) to talk about this. Because the thing is... You finally read Gorbengast? No. (laughs) Sorry. I said I'd buy it this year, Francine. I did not promise to read it. Okay. And I haven't had time to read Gorbengast or reread Frankenstein, Dracula, or Northanger Abbey. But, so... What I love about this book, one of the things that's great about it, is that it's not doing direct parody or homage the way, like Masquerade is this big, yeah. you know, it's Phantom of the Opera with a bunch of other opera and musical references thrown yeah. in. This is a much less direct parody, but it is very much an homage to Gothic literature and a really specific part of Gothic literature, which is where the use of the liminal comes in. So like a very brief over- overture of the like Gothic novel tradition. Mm. I'm going back to like the 1790s and the reason it was called Gothic is because there's the settings were often these big medieval buildings and ruins 
It's kind of considered like a pseudo medieval idea of mystery and terror, this atmosphere. Ah. And then it kept going through these different resurgences and some of the, the biggest ones that you can think of, Frankenstein, also, you know, shout out to Mary Shelley for inventing sci-fi to get away from Byron and Percy because we all would. Like, mm-hmm. I'll invent a genre to get away from a fuckboy. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, side Vlad note, Bridgeton Series 2, Byron Slander, everyone should tune in. Yeah, support it. Very much support uh, Byron Slander. And Dracula, which is much later. Dracula was written in 1897. Oh, that is much later. Yeah, and it's... I really ought to reread it, especially talking about this book. There's there's some Dracula references. It does not deserve my hatred. I hate it because I had to study it with a particularly bad teacher. Uh, another good one, though, that came out before either of those is Northanger Abbey, uh, which was a gothic satire. This was Jane Austen taking the piss out of the gothic novel tradition. Oh, She wrote it in 1803, but it wasn't published until 1817. So I think it kind of lost a bit of its bite as a satire. Right. But if you read it with it as a satire in the back of your mind, it's very funny. I think it's, sh- and it shares its DNA with Carpe Jugulum. That's where it's getting it from. Uh, but one of the biggest ideas, piece of rhetoric used in Gothic literature is this idea of the liminal. I am going to bring this back to the book. Is, yeah. I, I don't care. This is very interesting. But you're talking here, especially more in later Gothic literature, and Frankenstein is such a good example to hold up for it. This is a quote from a guy called Manuel. Manuel Aguirre in The Rules of Gothic Grammar, and he's talking about the later Gothic. Gothic dwells on the liminality of the human condition, its potential for change, change not only on the moral plane, but also, and increasingly so as the genre develops, psychologically, change which in the 18th century debate on cherished identity is all too often seen as degrading or annihilating. Caught in the threshold region, Gothic characters are, if not destroyed, then transformed. They acquire numinous features and may come to resemble such denizens of the limen. Ghosts, monsters, demons, as exhibit a non-rational, compulsive, excessive, repetitive, mindless behaviour. Huh. Uh, so Frankenstein is a great example of this. Gran- okay. Frankenstein is a character that stands in the liminal. He's not quite human, but he is very much alive. And throughout that book, you know, it's really hard to remember what Frankenstein is about. There's a reason it's got the subtitle of Modern Prometheus. Because it's because it's been used in the Hammer horror. It's oh, oh, okay, yeah. Guy yeah. going uh with the screws in his head. Yeah, yeah. But the actual book is a beautiful kind of treatise on what it is to be alive, what life means, what it is to be human. And this, <clears throat> I know we should be talking about Dracula more than Frankenstein. This is a vampire book, but it is it's an homage to that kind of era of gothic literature that really embraces the liminal as this human being stuck in the middle. This brings us back around to your point about black and white running through this as a motif. The whole idea of granny is that she is straddling that line. Mm -hmm. Going way back to right near the beginning and something we talked about at, I think, quite good length in Witches Abroad. Granny flew high above the roaring treetops under a half moon. And we talked about enjoying the half moon. And she distrusts the half moon. Balancing so precariously between light and dark, it could do anything. And it goes into this thing about witches living on the edge of things and yeah. very much always being on the edge of things. But you can think about being on the outside looking in, which is very true, but also it's this precipice always ready to flip one way or the other. And there's, something... there's a little bit about Granny having one foot in shadow, is there? Yeah, very much so. And yeah. it goes into it in much more in more depth. But if you think of it as, you know, this idea of liminal spaces that comes through in Gothic literature, which it's really embracing, especially, like I said, the existential aspect of it, you go into her, her little secrets, all the witches knows and would ne- mm. know and would never say. One of the really dark moments of the book, like mm. considering this is a book about vampires, one of the darkest moments is Granny 
obviously had to make the decision around whether the mother or child's going to live. And the midwife that was there saying she should have let the father choose and granny saying, why would I want to hurt him? Like, why would I want to do that to him? It made me love granny very much that he said that, like, she was like, no, the, the man has nothing to do with this. This is not. Mm. Yeah, this is not. But I was very angry watching any any period drama, really, or even some modern things where the woman is in trouble in childbirth and the like to the father. What should we do? Should we save the child or the woman? I was like, save, save the fucking woman. Yeah. Come on. We can make another <laughs> if child. If she's not but... conscious to answer, then the answer is aunt, save her. Like, <laughs> Jesus. It's such a big bugbear, but yeah. it's what would happen. It's accurate. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. It, it makes me cross. Yeah, I've, I've told you, I'm not sure if I've said on the, the podcast, one of my things I hate, 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 hate watching. I hate watching it as women dying in childbirth and on TV. Yeah. Like it's my, I will turn the episode off. I'll skip over it. That's my trigger warning thing. I can't deal with it. Yeah, and that's fair. This bit of the book kind of gave me that same little heart grippy moment, except less because granny was in charge. So that was yeah. kind of cool. It just reinforced, reinforced my love for the character, I think. But I think it's so, so well done. And this is just in the first third of the book. You know, this keeps going. To do this is a really subtle homage to an iconic genre that is a weird genre that kind of ate itself over and over because it kept resurging. But it's always a bit more tongue in cheek or went over towards this liminal and existential because there's only so many times you can run someone running away in a medieval castle. Bluebeard kind of did that. What? Huh? Uh, sorry, weird old fairy tale. Woman uh-huh. marries a guy. He says you can go in every room in the castle apart from that one. So she goes in that one, and it's full of his dead wives. Do I mean Bluebeard? Yeah, because Blackbeard know. was the pirate. Oh, I, I no, I, I I know the like the, the trope of that. I didn't know Bluebeard was it. Huh? Yeah, cool. I think that's the name cool. of the like the the story. Ah. Um, which also I'm going to send all the listeners to read The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, which is a kind of updated, very gothic take on, not quite fairy tales, but old tales, old horror tales, things like that. There's her take on Bluebeard in there. But yeah, but in this book, it putting Granny in that position, she is the one who is, despite being a step back from the ac- action and on the edge of it in that way, also putting her literally standing half in light, half in shadow. Yeah. Um, when he did it in Witches Abroad, it was about there needs to be a good guy to offset the bad guy. She's the good one because her sister's the ba- chose to be the bad guy, but thinks she's the good one. Speaking of her sister, actually, I thought it was quite nice that Oates had the little moment with the mirror. Like Pratchett's kind of pointing to the, well, A, making fun a little bit of religious schisms, but also pointing to the potential dangers of a mirror. Yeah, I didn't go into the Omnian schism stuff, but it's very funny, especially considering we got to see the birth of modern Omnianism yeah. In, yeah. Um, in Small Gods. But Oates is quite an interesting character to put across this, because where Granny is never sure that she is doing the right thing, she is always stuck in the middle of it, mm. wondering if she's being human enough. And she, like I said, she's doing it in a really different way to which is abroad. He manages to take Granny's innate granniness and apply it to the genre he's doing. Like Witches Abroad was a story about fairy tales. This is a story about crumbling castles and billowing curtains. Lords and, and Ladies was very gothic as well, but in a in a more I, tropey way, I think. It was more like it was early more British tape. dark yeah. folklore, like King of Elfland's Daughter, that kind of, what's it? No, there was a lot. Do you, do you remember we did a whole section on the gothic literature parallels? 
Oh yeah, of course. I suppose there was all the running away in the castle. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. But it, it was kind of all, even though it was really tense, like stressful moments. The the kind of obvious. Yeah, it hit the trope a bit harder. This is more like a long-running thematic yeah. thing of you can't write about vampires and not do it like that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're going to do it like that, yeah. then you're going to be a bit liminal and yeah. wonder about Cracks the human knuckles. condition. <laughs> We're getting liminal. Let's you're going to put liminal, Granny in liminal. between the light and dark. <laughs> and to do it by one of the first scenes you have with her is her flying under the half moon. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so beautifully done. Very good, very nice, yes. Anyway, that's enough of my unhinged ranting, Francine. Do you have never, an obscure never. reference, Finial? I do. You'll be oh, you pleased to hear eventually. Well I done. found mine, yes. Um, so, back to Shornog, mm-hmm. as we should always be, going yes. back to Shornog eventually. His Lancastrian army knife is obviously <laughs> not an obscure reference towards the Swiss army knife. One reason for the slow progress on it was that the king himself was taking an active interest in the country's only defence project and Sean was receiving little notes up to three times every day. And Sean diplomatically added some of them and lost as many as he could. <laughs> and I saw, I can't remember, I'd, it wasn't an annotated project file, I think it was one of, one of the other sites that has annotations, pointed out that this could be a little bit of a throw throwback reference to prince albert who was very like that micromanaging of his military stuff like in a really unhelpful way always sending little suggestions little notes really trying to be helpful in that and like his that the military i think took up his suggestion on like helmets design of helmets and that was enough to keep him happy and they just kind of lost all the rest (laughs) of the suggestions and i thought yeah that sounds possibly like this a little bit (laughs) i love it I also, I now can't remember if it's in this section. It's not a major spoiler for the other sections, but one of the tools on the the Lankarami knife is a small tool for winning ontological arguments, which... Uh... Ah, no, not in this bit, but I liked a device possibly quite small for finding things that are lost. <laughs> <laughs> Just invent that for me. A device possibly quite small. The ontological <laughs> arguments one seems more practical. Let's see if we can do that. <laughs> Mallet. Mallet, yeah. I haven't had an ontological argument for a while. I assume a mallet will do the job. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I think that's everything we are going to say on the first third of this book. There's much more I could say. We will be back next week with part two. Two for joy. Two for joy. Sorry about all the sorrow, listeners. It starts on page 130 in the quirky paperback with Nanny scratched her nose and ends on page 254. With he slid gently to the ground and then six inches above ground level was carried off into the night. In the meantime, dear listener, you can follow us on Instagram at the Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, on Twitter at Make Ye Fret Pod, on Facebook at the Truth Shall Make Ye Fret. You can join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, albatrosses, and indeed magpies, the tree shall make ye fret pod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the tree shall make ye fret and in- exchange your hard earned pennies for bonus nonsense, such as Francine's recent rabbit hole on medieval bestiaries, which was a delight <laughs> and a recipe for something, which I will think of this month. Maybe. I like Probably. the one you put off already, the, uh, the caponata. Caponata, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to try and make that. And in the meantime, dear listener, don't let us detain you. Magpiric victory. Can we make something of that? Give me a minute. <laughs>